Today's scripture lesson is from the first Samuels chapter 17 verses 1 through 54 but I'm only going to read verses 4 through 11. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and, he, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shackles of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shackles of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in our summer of stories, and uh, been interesting to look at some of these Old Testament stories, a lot of which you have not heard since you were in Sunday school, right? We, we uh, for some reason, as preachers, we like assume all these stories instead of preaching them, and I like to preach them. And I find, even though we think we're familiar with them and we know the stories, a lot of times when you reread them carefully as adults, you don't really know the stories. And in fact, this one is one in particular that I have learned a lot about in the last couple years. There was a business author named Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book called David and Goliath. And he did a lot of research. Gladwell's kind of a, a researcher. He, he did a lot of research on this story and, and learned some things that I did not know and really reframed this story for me. And so um, hoping that uh, the same will go for you as we look at this overly familiar story. To do that, let's start out at the other end of the spectrum. See, a lot of times we start with David. Let's start today with Goliath. Let's think of his perspective first. Goliath, we are told, is six cubits and a span tall. Now, does anybody know what a cubit is? Well, a cubit is a measurement that goes from your elbow to your fingertips. Okay, that was considered a cubit. And some of our early uh, translations of this, our earliest copies of this, actually don't say six. It says a lower number. And so we're not totally sure how tall he was, and that's not real exact a measurement, except go to the person next to you. Come here, Jim. And measure your cubit versus somebody else's cubit. Now, I want you to notice I'm a little bit taller than Jim, right? But our cubits are almost the same, right? And so for most people, a cubit is roughly the same. Thank you, Jim. Um, and so uh, a cubit was a fairly consistent way of measuring, um, except uh, if you had somebody that was really, really tall or really, really short. But for most people, that's pretty average. The question is, how tall were people back then and what were their cubits compared to what our cubits are? So there's a lot of questions as to the height of Goliath. If we figure a cubit to be about what we say, 
and we take the, the, the copies of this book that say six cubits in a span. He's probably about 10 feet tall. Uh, some of our earliest copies, though, and, and calculating a little bit for size, he could be maybe about seven feet tall, which in those days, seven feet tall is still way taller than anybody else on the battlefield. So either way, Goliath is much, much taller, and, and the Egyptians do have reference to 10-foot-tall people in the land of Cana. So however you want to, to, to look at that. Goliath is a Philistine. That means he's one of the descendants of Ham. That's one of the sons of Noah. Um, this nation, Philistia, uh, shows up later in Joshua. So when they're going into the promised land, they don't seem to be there. And then once they start fighting their way into the promised land, suddenly the Philistines are there. And uh, they're known as some of the sea peoples. They probably were, were ocean-faring and uh, came, if you looked at Israel, they're, they're down here on the coast, on the coastal plain, kind of the flat part in the south of uh, Israel. Uh, you can see their story as they fight off uh, as Samson. Samson fights with them. The Philistines actually steal the Ark of the Covenant at one point and then give it back because it's making everybody sick. But the Philistines are kind of this thorn in Israel's side that's, that live in their land and won't, they're, they're too strong to be put out. So the Philistines are rising to power. At this time, Israel has a king. Uh, in 1 Samuel, they have Saul. And then King David, as we know he's going to be king, has been anointed by Samuel as the next king. But nobody knows that. Right now, David is just a boy. He's just a shepherd. And so if you're to picture Israel again, you have these flatlands, and then you get the mountains, which is where Jerusalem is, and where the Judeans, the, the Israelites in the south live. And uh, there's sort of these valleys that go up the mountains called the Shephelah. And in one of these valleys of the Shephelah, it's called the Valley of Elah. And it's said that here is where the Philistines and the Israelites uh, meet up, like they're going to have battle. And uh, um, this, the, uh, let's see, to the north are the Israelites and to the south are the Philistines. And so there, there's this valley in between and they're up on these two hills sort of looking at each other. And for 40 days they sit there. Why do they sit there for 40 days? Well, for either, for either uh, nation to run across the valley would be to give up their superior position. You understand? Whoever was the attacking army would be at a great disadvantage. They would have the low ground. So they sort of stand off and look at each other. Now, the ancient practice in a standoff like this would be to go to what's called single combat. Basically, instead of us all fighting and us all dying, you give your strongest warrior, I'll give my best warrior, they'll duke it out, and we'll just call the winner of that the winner of the whole army. Now, Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. <coughs> because of his height, however tall we think he is, he's still way taller than everybody else, which means he can reach further than everybody else. He can carry longer spears so he can, he, and swords so that he can fight and keep people off. Plus, all his vital targets are out of the way. His throat, his head... Okay, the, the enemy's got to get real close to attack him, and he can fight them further off. Furthermore, we're told that he has an armor of bronze. This is right at the beginning of bronze. Okay, people are just figuring out how to bend into mold bronze. In other words, he has the best armor that the technology of the day can give him. Okay, he's got the best armor, he's got the best reach, <coughs> he's got the best size. You don't want to mess with Goliath. You really don't mess, want to mess with him 
one-on-one. So every day, Goliath goes down to the bottom of their side of the valley and yells and screams and taunts. Here we see the value or the trouble of intimidation. Goliath knows that if you take away somebody's hope, then uh, you can probably get them to do about whatever you want. You can win a fight before it even starts if they have no faith in the outcome. So for 40 days, nobody from Israel will go down and fight this guy. Now, I wouldn't want to fight him, right? I don't want to fight him. This is a professional warrior. This is what he's made his career at. Okay, there's no professional army from Israel. And these are not people that fight all the time. Both sides would have heard the stories of Samson, the fall of Jericho. Israel would know the stories of how God had delivered them. But it's way different to know the stories than it is to look across the valley and see a giant. It's way different to know the stories. It's way different when it's your giant and you are staring him down. So Israel is in a tough way. They finally got their king. They finally think they should have power, but they're stuck. Now David, who's just still a shepherd boy, he has been anointed as king, and a big part of this story is showing that Saul is not worthy to be king, and David is worthy to be king. But he brings food to his brothers. He's not even part of the battle. Okay, we know he's from back in Bethlehem, and he is a shepherd. He watches out for the sheep. But he's sent by his father to go and bring food to his brothers, which you would need to pay attention to if you've been sitting up in a mountain for 40 days. And uh, there's no end in sight. Nobody else is going out there. So David comes in and sees instantly the problem. The problem is not just a battle of people. Okay, it's my army versus your army. But the understanding is, All war is ultimately ideological, right? My ideas versus your ideas. And in those those days, all wars were ultimately wars of the gods. Whose God is more powerful? Whose God is going to give the people victory? We have a faith conflict going on here. When David gets on the stand, he understands we got a theological problem. And he says, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words... If God is God, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? And how come nobody is going down to fight him? Finally, his comments get all the way to Saul, and Saul decides to let David go down in battle of Goliath. Now, we don't, we're not quite sure why, right? Is David just so confident and talking so much stuff that he talks Saul into letting him go? Or, or is Saul just giving up at this point? Like, fine, let, let the 15-year-old go down there. Let's, we're not going anywhere. Let's go ahead and end this. Is it a surrender or is it confidence? We're not quite sure. Saul gives David his armor, but it, but it doesn't really fit David. David's only a boy. He's, uh, he's not the soldiering type. So he takes his staff and his sling, and he goes down to the brook and gets stones and heads out to face Goliath. He's the only one in the whole army willing to do so. Now, this is the part of the story we think we know the most, and I think we probably know the least, right? We think little David goes down there with nothing but a slingshot, no armor, to face Goliath. It's the ultimate underdog story. In fact, when we have an underdog story, what do we call it? A David and Goliath story. We use this as a metaphor for the underdog story. And yet I think we need to take a much closer look at this story. So let me start reading again in verse 41. And I want you to pay particular attention 
to what Goliath does, because Goliath acts very strangely here. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. See, Goliath also knows it's a theological battle. I'm going to curse you with my gods. Bring your gods on. The Philistine said to David, Come at me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of all the hosts of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that, God, that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give me, you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet uh, came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put in his hand his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone stank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, first, let's notice a couple of very strange things about Goliath, things that people have pondered for a long time. He acts very oddly. First of all, the text says he comes forward and he goes towards Goliath. And some translations actually say slowly. The Hebrew seems to imply he's walking very, very slowly. Okay? I, I, as opposed to David, it says quickly, he says he comes and he's going. And he's led by his shield bearer. Why is his shield bearer still in front of him as he goes out to battle? And uh, the text says, when he looked and saw David. This is strange. We're in a valley. He could see David the whole time coming over. Why does he suddenly look and see David instead of just watching as David comes across? How come he suddenly seems to look? And then he, he, he calls out to him. He says to come, and he says, am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks? Why plural, right? How many sticks does David have? One. He has one stick, singular. Why should you come at me with sticks? Well, scholars have talked about this, and researchers have looked at this. And uh, what you find is people that are considered giants or very large uh, have certain traits. One is they, they lose the ability to move a lot, okay? They move slowly. How many of you remember Andre the Giant? You remember Andre the Giant? And remember, he, made a, he was part of a brilliant movie called The Princess Bride. And he just couldn't move a lot as he got older and as he got bigger. But, but often people who have uh, some sort of forms of giantism have what's called acromegaly, acromegaly which is a, uh, a deformity that happens with their head and their face where their features get more pronounced. Okay? And it, you can think of it like more, they, their heads look more like, East, like Easter Island statues. You know, they get the bulk, the bulk shoulders, the bulky chin. And how many of you remember Jaws from uh, the James Bond movie, right? The, the giant jaws, they get this pronounced jaw, they get this sort of flatter face as their head sort of forms oddly. And uh, one of the interesting things about this is uh, it makes them often dizzy. They get more dizzy and it really affects their vision. They get uh, oftentimes very nearsighted 
and they oftentimes get double vision. Okay, so be, because of the way the face is moving with the optical nerve. So think about Goliath's now. He has to be led down by his shield bearer because he can't see real well and he can't move real well. And um, he, uh, he can't see David until he's real close. So he doesn't bother to look when he's on the other side of the valley. He waits till he gets closer. And then when he says sticks, perhaps he's seeing double. He's seeing David with two sticks. So for all his strengths, Goliath has some major weaknesses, right? Now, let's think about our poor little underdog, David. When we hear him giving up armor for a sling, we tend to think slingshot, like a child's sling. But, but that was not the case. Uh, in those days, there were three kinds of soldiers. Cal- caval- uh, cavalry, uh, cavalry uh, were the horses and the chariots. Heavy infantry were the soldiers that would come in to fight. So Goliath is like the, the best heavy infantry that's ever been. Right? He's got all this armor and he's ready to go. And then there was the artillery. And once we get bows and arrows, we get uh, people using bows and arrows and artillery. But early artillery were the slingers. They were called the slingers. And we have history of the slingers. I'm going to sling here. Um, I've done this in a children's sermon before. Okay, so this is one that I made. And they would have made it out of like a thinner uh, leather. And it would have worked a lot better. And they would have slung stones. I'm going to sling paper at you. But you better wake up because it's coming. Okay, this is the same physics as what was to be called a trebuchet. Um, and so when you let go of one of the strings, it ends up uh, shooting the stone. So you ready? So David could probably swing about six or seven times around. Ready? There we go. I'll do it again. It's fun. Um, he could probably go about six or seven rotations. And uh, the stones in this particular valley, ooh, that went high. <laughs> so when we say sling, it's not a slingshot, right? It's, it's a sling, okay? Um, David could probably spin six or seven ro- ro- revolutions a second, probably launch about 35 meters per second, about 78 miles an hour. Stones could come off of a sling like this, Okay. And uh, in this particular area of Israel, there are a lot of round stones, perfectly round stones, uh, that are called barium sulfate, and they are twice the density of what would be an average stone, okay? In other words, there's bullets in this valley, okay? And so uh, when we look at this, it has a stopping power of about a 45-millimeter handgun, okay? And they would use them in battle like this, okay? This was part of the artillery. They were very accurate, too could shoot up to about 200 yards, and uh, we have historical record of slingers that were so accurate they could hit birds out of the air. I mean, they got really, really good at this. And guess what David was doing all the time when he was out in the field watching sheep? You know, when you're 10 years old and you're watching sheep all day, you figure out stuff to do. And one of the things you would do is you would get good with your sling. David says he has killed lions and bears with this. And so our weak little David isn't so weak, is he? He's actually pretty good, and he's actually got a pretty good weapon. And if you think about Goliath, he keeps saying, come on, let's go, come on. But why does Goliath want him to come? Because Goliath expects, just like Saul expected, giving him the armor, that they were going to duke it out mano a mano. We were going to do this as heavy artillery, um, as, as heavy infantry. But David comes out there with an artillery weapon. 
And he knows his strengths. And he knows what he's good at. And he uses that. So David rushes on him. Stops. Puts a rock in his sling. Now, now Goliath has bronze armor, which means if David hits the armor, he's in trouble. It's not going to work. So he has to go somewhere that is vital. And he does. He hits him right here in the head. This kind of weapon, that kind of location would have caused major, uh, major trauma to Goliath. Goliath falls. David slays him then. And the victory is theirs. The Philistines go into a panic and start running because their champion, who was so undefeated, is now down. And Israel gets excited and pursues their enemy with a different kind of confidence. See, there's a lot more to the story than you learned in Sunday school, isn't there? The question for us today is, first of all, how does David, being so young, not being in the military, have such hope in the midst of a whole army for whom hope has evaporated? Right? Everybody else has no hope. How does this David stand up in the middle of this and say, "Uh uh-uh, we can take this guy. Put me in, coach. I got this. Okay, how does David get this kind of confidence? He doesn't want the armor even, but to trust his sling, to trust what he knows. Maybe he is annoyingly optimistic. I know people like that, right? The Pollyannas that drive you crazy because they're always happy. Okay, maybe David's like that, but actually we know from the rest of the life of David that that is not David. David is not always happy. Maybe clinging to the promises that he is going to be king. Maybe all that time he spent in the fields talking with God, he has a different kind of closeness with God. Maybe he has a sense that he's not fighting himself, but it's God fighting through him. That does seem to be what he says to Goliath. And I think we love a story like this because we have all felt the hopelessness of facing something big that we didn't think we could handle, right? We have all faced our own Goliaths. Hope is a powerful thing, but so is the absence of hope, isn't it? And have you, have you been there? And you've been there with other people? So we worry and we struggle and we don't have the hope that David has. You know, we ought to be able to have the hope that David has because we have an even different sense of the love of God, right? We live on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Christ. So we should understand God's love and God's grace and God's favor in a way that David could never have imagined. And yet... It's different when you're in the valley with your own Goliath, isn't it? It's different when you're facing your own giant. We know that Jesus stared down the giant of sin and death and defeated it with his own death. But still, as confident as we should be, and as much as we can sing about it and talk about it when we're here in church, when you're in the valley against your own Goliath, it is a different battle. It is a different battle. So we often lose hope. And here's the other side of this lesson. When we lose hope, it's very tempting to try to be someone or something that we're not. It's very tempting to to bolster ourselves, to put on some armor in some way, to either distance ourselves emotionally or to get mad at something else that we can control, to try to pretend like everything's okay. It's very, very tempting to put on all kinds of armor that doesn't fit us. See, real hope, real hope that David has isn't a hope that tries to pretend something that he's not, 
but a hope that trusts God enough that David can turn down the armor and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to be who God prepared me to be for this moment. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to go with what God has trained me to do. How many of us would have even stepped up? But if we had stepped up, we would have taken the armor just to be safe. See, when, when we get into struggles, we get a heartache. When we lose our hope, we tend to lose ourselves. And David knows. No, when you're facing the giant, you need to be who God prepared you to be. You need to be confident in yourself. Because I'm confident in who I am in Christ. Okay, if God loves me this much, if God is with me this much, if Christ died for me, then, then I can go through this life with a different kind of confidence to say, that the same God that died for me, the same God that loves me, is the God that prepared me for whatever I'm going to face. And so I, I don't need all these other gifts. I don't need all these other abilities. I don't need to pretend like I'm somebody I'm not. I just need to simply pick up my stones, pick up whatever God has given me to prepare me for what I'm about to go through and move into it. Very often, I think, when we face our giants, God has been preparing us our whole lives for them. We just don't realize it. And have you ever had that experience? Where you, you found out, actually, I do have the courage to get through this. I just didn't think I did when we started. Now, David is not a perfect character. He makes mistakes with Bathsheba and with his children. But here we see the best of him. His faith, his bravery, his hope. The best of his kingship. That's exactly why Jesus came to be a part of the lineage of David. And the question for us today is, do we trust God enough to stand simply in this life with the simple weapons that God has given us and face off against the giants? Because what I have found is that often the giants have weaknesses. The difficult things you think are so difficult, there is a way through. And if you would just be yourself, if you would just trust in who God has made you to be, maybe you are exactly prepared to fight in those weaknesses. And let me say one last thing, because I think churches face this too. Uh, we live in a world that is, it's not easy to be a church. Okay, it's not easy to be a church right now. And there's this tendency to then, like, well, let's, let's try to be like every other church, right? What we need is, you know, fill in the blank. The question is, who are we? What are the stones that God has given us? And uh, that's the question we keep asking around here, is who are we? Who has God prepared us to be? And, um, and so we can't be tempted to be somebody else. We've got to be us. And, and amazingly, even though it's hard, I think that God will give us a way through. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.